we're almost at the end of this uh, book. And we've reached, in some ways, the, the, the climax. Uh, as our chapter begins, we've been waiting for this day where two laws from the emperor, this Persian emperor, have gone out. One saying that anyone who wants to can slaughter God's people, the Jews. And another saying the Jews are allowed to gather to defend themselves. Uh, it's all been heading towards this day in the 12th month. And now that day has arrived. So Esther 9 verse 1. Now in the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, on the 13th day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house and his fame spread through all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed Parshandratha, and Dalphon, and Aspata, and Porata, and Adalia, and Aridata, and Parmashta, and Arisai, and Ardei, and Vaisata, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa the sister was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. What further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king... Let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to the day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar. And they killed 300 men in Susa. <coughs> but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now, the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who had hated them. <coughs> Excuse me, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar. And on the 14th day, they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. <coughs> but the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th, and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day of gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar, and also the 15th day of the same year, year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness 
and from mourning into a holiday. That they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Is someone getting a glass of water? Sorry, I'm just going to choke up. Thanks. Um, Esther 9. Almost at the end of the story. I wonder if it's quite what you were expecting. Uh, Let me begin by asking you a question. Uh, Where where do you go for rest, for peace? Life is is hard for most of us, some of the time, for some of us all of the time. And and when it's all just got too much, where is your your safe space, as it were? Where is your place you go to? For some, it's, it's bed. We just can't wait to get back into our room, pull the covers up, put our head on the pillow and just disappear, escape from the world. For others, it might be uh, TV uh, in the, the pandemic, during the pandemic, um, 57 billion minutes of, uh, thanks so much, of The Office were streamed, the TV show, the US TV show, The Office, 57 billion minutes just in America. Okay, never mind uh, in the UK and the rest of the world. It was Comfort TV, this that's a great show, but this show about a kind of family where you get you just get drawn into the characters' lives, and it's it, it's kind of it's almost like a little sedative. Oh, okay, or, or just just for a while, like people switch off mayhem outside in the world, but I've got twenty minutes of, of joy and happiness and peace. Perhaps it's friends and family you just want to get home. You're maybe you're studying in Leeds, and it's not it's not been easy, but getting back home, mom, dad, friends you've known all your lives, brothers, a, a, a place. Uh, a beach, a countryside bench, a park, who knows? Where do you go for serenity? Uh, Esther 9 invites us to a place, a place of rest, of, of peace, a place you can find even in the midst of all the mayhem of life, where just for a while you can be at rest. But we're going to see it's not so much a physical place, not so much a a spot, a location on Google Maps, as it is a place in time. But it is a place of warmth and light, of the smell of baking bread, of joy and of peace. And it's a place that everybody is invited to. Whether you'd call yourself uh, a Christian or not, uh, the invitation of Esther 9 is open to all. Let's dive in, because it might not look promising territory, Uh, on first read. We'll look at the first 15 verses uh, to start with. This is the battle for rest. This is about the battle for rest. It's the first scene in in the book. We we get to the 13th of Adar, we're told. Dates are given often in the book of Esther. The 13th day of the 12th month. The 12th month is Adar. That's a bit like their December, I guess. Um, But because the Jewish calendar works differently, the 13th of Adar is actually tomorrow. Um, Coincidentally, okay. Um, so the very events we're describe, we're looking at today, the ones we've just read, happened this day. So the Jewish days start in the evening. They start at sunset. Sunset today, about two thousand five hundred years ago. Okay. Best best guesses from historians is they happened four seven three BC. Okay, so this is the very day we're preaching on the very day they kicked in. How about that for planning? Okay, ever seven series. <laughs> Total accident, I didn't realise. <laughs> I absolutely no idea. And then realised halfway through, thought it would look impressive. <laughs> so there we go. There we go. This day, about two and a half thousand years ago. And you can imagine 
that the, the Jews, that they know that this law has gone out saying that anyone can attack them. When the wicked Haman was in power as vizier, chief minister to the king, he wrote this law. It went to all the empire, right from India across the, um, uh, to North Africa downwards. Um, almost all the known world, at least in terms of where the Jews were scattered, almost all the known world had had a decree published saying you can attack the Jews, anyone who wants to. It's free reign just on this day. Okay, BBC News, it's on the, on, the, on the radio, it's on all the blogs. You can go for it this one day, the 13th of Adar. But at the same time, because of changes in power at the palace, after that, a second law had gone out. A Jewish man had been raised up and taken Haman's place, this guy Mordecai we kept hearing about in the, in the passage. And when he took the reins of power, he sent out a law in the king's name saying, Jews, you can gather and defend yourselves. So you can imagine the trepidation that morning of a Jewish family getting up, dad strapping on his sword, hugging wife and, and kids, locking the doors, bolting down the windows and heading off to join his compatriots in the town square. What would happen? Deep breaths, silence. It's like the beginning of a Western. Who's going to blink first? And incredibly, they are still attacked. You'd have thought perhaps that the fact this second decree had gone out would mean no one would attack the Jews, that all would be well. They'd be scared off. And yet we can see that's not the case. Battle does uh, engage in Susa, which is one of the capitals of the Persian Empire. They had three or four capitals. But in, in one of the capital cities alone, the one where our action has been set, where Esther and the emperor Ahasuerus live, 500 men are killed, as in 500 men come and attack the Jews. Among them are the 10 sons of Haman, the, the really the sort of pantomime baddie of the book. He's already dead, but his 10 sons, obviously grown-up sons, these aren't the toddlers, uh, the 10 sons come and attack and are defeated. And news comes of this battle to the palace, to the citadel, to where the king is. And the king seems, well, it's hard to quite get his tone. It seems that he, he's, he's almost impressed. 500, wow. Okay, there really was a problem here. And your people, Queen Esther, Esther is a Jew, your people have defended themselves well. 500. 500 have died today on this special, this day of judgment. Now, what is your request? Now, here's sweet Esther. Um, parents often sort of name their children after Bible characters. One of our children has got Esther as their middle name. His sweet, gentle, beautiful Esther. The king comes and says, what, what can I give you? Your people have, have fought. They're safe. What can I give you? And Esther says, oh, please, just peace in the empire. Please, can we all just be one again? I hate all this warfare and bloodshed, this battle. Might everything be peace and light again? Not a bit of it. Verse 13. Thank you for another request. Can we have another day battle? Another days of battle. Give us the chance, O king, to defend ourselves again, to kill off our enemies. Not only that, but, but my people killed these 10 sons of Haman. They're already dead. But please, could you stick them on spikes around the city so everybody can see their dead bodies hanging up in the air? around the city. There's sweet, gentle Bill Esther. 
I won't tell you which of our kids has got Esther as a middle name. You might want to might watch out for her. And so they get, he grants a request. They get a second, a second day in the city, just in Susa, not in the rest of the empire, and another 300 attack. Now, that is why Esther has asked for it. She's not vindictive. She's not cracked. She's not um, just some sort of psychopath who likes bloodshed. She knows her people are not yet safe. And lo and behold, 300 come and attack and 300 more die. It's an it's a indication of the scale of the hatred for God's people. Meanwhile, out in the empire, we read in verse 16 that there's 75,000 others who've attacked. What are we to do with that? If you're new to church, your first time with us, perhaps you remember the old Bible story from school assembly or something as a kid of Jesus talking about farmers sowing seeds or stopping storms or turning water into wine. And suddenly here's a story of bloodshed and violence as a Christian. And this is exactly one of those Old Testament passages that you kind of hope your friends who aren't Christians won't ever ask you about. Um, not a passage you enjoy reading in the morning. What can we say? What is it here for? It is as much the word of God, of course, as is the gospel of Mark. All scripture, Paul tells us, is God breathed. There is no two levels in the Bible as if some books are more the word of God and some less. So what is Esther 9 and this battle? meant to teach us well let's say a couple of things by introduction first of all remember this is a defensive war it's there in verse 2 of chapter 9 uh, the jewish gather, jewish jews gathered sorry in their cities throughout all the provinces of king hashforoth to lay hands on those who sought their harm it's not that, that that god's people jews get up in the morning and say great this is a day where we can just go and have a crack at anyone we like I've always fancied my neighbour's farm. I, I don't mind you know, stealing his sheep. Let, let's go. It's not that. It is defensive. So if no one had attacked them, there would have been zero casualties. That's really important. It's there in verse 2. It's there in the decree that we looked at last week. It's there in the language of verse 16, where we read about the, the Jews gathering to defend themselves. Okay, so this is, if you like... Um, the, the, the Nazis coming and the Jews being given the right to defend themselves as the stormtroopers uh, approach. This is not a front foot proactive, let's go and kill our enemies kind of war. No one attacks, no one dies. So it is a defensive war. It's also though a holy war. This is something we're more likely to miss. We have to do a little bit of work here, a little bit of thinking. Um, the decree that went out that said they could defend themselves. Uh, it's there in chapter 8 and verse 11. Uh, the king allowed the Jews, allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather, defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. Okay, just, just notice that last bit. They can plunder the goods. That's what they're allowed to do by the king's law. But I wonder if you noticed when I read through the passage, three times we were told they did not plunder their goods. It's there in verse 10. They destroy the sons, but they laid no hands on the plunder. It's there in verse 15. They killed 300 more in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. It's there in verse 15. 75,000 killed of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Why not? They were allowed to by the king, 
but they did not. Why? It's a little clue that the Jews fighting understand what they're doing here. And it's a clue that makes more sense if we, if we know the, the story that goes beforehand. Occasionally, very occasionally in the Bible, God said to his people, um, Israel in the Old Testament, you're going to act as agents of my judgment. So this is not me saying you can go and do what you like with your swords, but I have decided that that nation, that tribe, that town, that nation is going to come under judgment. Uh, it happened with a nation that were sacrificing their own children, a tribe that was sacrificing their own children, putting them in the fires, and God said, enough's enough. They're going to be killed. And the rule was, okay, well, you're going to go and be, you're going to be the soldiers, essentially, but because this isn't just some sort of conquest, it's not Putin invading Ukraine, you can't steal their stuff afterwards. You can't take their gold and their houses. All of it is, is gone, destroyed, not for you to profit from. Take no plunder. So, so when the Jews don't take plunder, it's a sign that they understand what they're doing is acting as God's agents of judgment on those who hate his people. In fact, that's been a theme sort of hidden throughout the book or already seen in the background throughout the book. Time and again, we read that the bad guy, Haman, is an Agagite. It probably doesn't mean much to us. But, but the, uh, on, on several occasions, he's given that little epithet, Haman the Agagite. In fact, the first time he's introduced, he's Haman the Agagite. And the first time you meet a character in a, in a Hebrew story, the little kind of description of them is going to be key to understanding who they are going to be. Uh, Agag, Haman the Agagite. Agag was an Amalekite king, a king of another tribe in the Old Testament, a tribe that had persistently persecuted the Jewish people. They were the first ones to attack the Jews when they came out of Egypt in the Exodus. The stragglers, the elderly, the pregnant, the infirm, who, who were struggling to keep up with the Exodus as they traveled through the desert, the Amalekites came and butchered. And that was just the first of many occasions when the Amalekites would come and attack God's people. And God had said to one of Israel's kings, Saul, you must wipe out Agag and the Amalekites. Don't take any plunder, but you must wipe them out for what they've done. And Saul hadn't. In fact, he took the plunder. And so the Amalekites lived on, the Agagites lived on and on to persecute and persecute and persecute. And Esther is just the chapter 12 or whatever it is in the story. And so when we meet Haman, the Agagite, and we meet Mordecai, who is a descendant of the same family as Saul, the king. We read in earlier on that, that Mordecai, the kind of the Jew who's raised up, he is a, a, of the family of Saul. He's a Benjaminite from Kish. If, if we were Jewish, we'd hear, ah, here is the next installment of that war. At every stage, Israel has failed to obey God. Failed to act as instrument of his judgment. But now in Esther, they are obedient. They do destroy all those who attack. Again, remember, any Amalekite or Agagite, any son of Haman, should he have wished, who repented and said, no, we have done wrong. Well, fine, he can join God's people and, and um, be forgiven. But those who continue to persecute, well, God says enough is enough and judgment falls on them. That is what's going on. But still, what's it got to do with us? How does that speak to us in 2023? Just look what the war brings. We get the same word three times. Chapter 9, look at verse 15. 
Let me look at verse 15, and it's uh, not there because I wrote the wrong verse down. Look at that. Uh, verse 16. The rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies. The relief word is absolutely crucial. It's there in verse 17. The Jews who were in Susa gathered on 13th on 14th and rested. It's the same word, the resting day. Three times we get it in the passage. The war brings rest. The destruction of the enemies is not some sort of bloody crusade, but it is to bring rest to God's people. That is the goal of the warfare. And that begins to lead us towards what Esther 9 might be saying to us today. It tells us, first of all, about God. God is a God who will fight to bring rest for his people. And that will mean destroying his enemies. There are all sorts of people who set themselves up as enemies of God. Primary is is Satan. There's a spiritual world out there. But many human beings follow in his footsteps. There is a warning to us. If we won't come to God, bow the knee to his son, Jesus, if we continue in that rebellion, then one day God will judge. People don't like speaking about judgment, perhaps understandably. Churches on the whole have tended to downplay it. We want to charm people in. Hey, come to Jesus and he will fulfill your desires. Come to Jesus and you'll feel loved. Come to Jesus. Now, all those things are true, sort of, understood rightly. But we shy away from saying that all of us, all of us, this is not goodies and baddies, all of us as human beings, we all naturally stand as enemies of God. And so the command, the invitation to come to Jesus is, it's not simply sort of he is a better wish fulfiller than anyone else on earth, a better genie. But also he's the only place of safety. Naturally, we are enemies of God. And the incredible news of the Bible is that God ought to have just left us alone. We all ought to have been ultimately facing the sword on the wrong end of God's judgment. We all ought to have been receiving holy war fought against us by God and the angels of heaven. But so much did God love his people that he became one of us. Jesus, the son of God, became man. And on the cross, as it were, he he said, fight a holy war against me. It's as if heaven declared war on heaven's son, Jesus. Jesus said, "I I will stand as a representative for all their sin, all their rebellion, all their evil. Punish me so that you can give them rest. Justice had to be served. We saw that last week. And so heaven declared war on Jesus at the cross. He was cut off. The darkness covered the land. Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? He drank the cup of God's judgment. Holy war fought against the holy son of heaven. So that... He could then say to us, come to me, all who are weary lady, weary and heavy laden, and you will find rest for your souls. Come to me, says Jesus, and you won't have to pay for any of your sins. All your rebellion has been cleansed by my death. And so I can give you, I can give you rest. And that is found eternally in heaven. Most of the blessings of the Christian life will come to you after you die. Most of them rest in heaven. But that invitation to eternal rest and peace is an invitation to a future that is unimaginably beautiful. 
in between in between do we have any kind of uh, role in in the kind of battle that's going on in, in Esther 9 well certainly not with a sword certainly not with a sword there is no occasion on which the christian church are meant to pick up physical weapons guns bullets swords and shields and fight there have been times in history where that has gone wrong uh, and Primarily, you might think they're of the Crusades. Whatever you think of them as a political thing, they should not be called by, the, by a church. Churches do not fight. Uh, Paul says in the book of Ephesians that we fight not against flesh and blood. In other words, not against people, but against spiritual forces, against the devil and his cohorts. But he doesn't say we don't fight. It's not we do not fight. It's we don't fight against flesh and blood. Until you arrive safely home in that heavenly rest, when you come to Christ, you are signing up as a soldier. Children, I wonder if you've ever seen those posters. I think they were initially from the Victorian era, certainly World War I, with the, the, the guy, the general, pointing out saying, your country needs you. It was a recruitment poster to get you to join the army. Now, Jesus doesn't need you. He's quite capable of fighting his own battles. But he does say, come and join me, and you will be in an army. Not to fight other human beings, but to fight against the devil who will wage war against your soul, fight against the sin, the enemy that remains within, it will be hard. Might be worth asking, is your life warfare at the moment if you call yourself a follower of Christ? Are you waging war against, let's say, the sin that remains within? If I was to ask you now, what is the, what is the main enemy? that you're fighting would you have an answer our battles look different one person is greed another it's lust another it's anger another it's well you can fill in the blank what are you fighting against the spirit indwells you in order to make you a soldier a fighter and then of course there is christ's ongoing battle where he seeks to conquer the nations but he does so again not with a sword but with the word of the gospel, with the preaching of the gospel. The church is an army in the sense that we go to all nations to preach the gospel. And therefore, or rather as we do that, Christ, through his word and his spirit, brings his enemies to bow the knee before him. All of us once were enemies of Christ. The gospel was preached. And if we're Christians, we change sides from enemies to friends. Uh, Martin Luther King in... Um, the height of the civil rights movement in America, mid 20th century, preached a sermon called uh, Love Your Enemies. And he quoted Abraham Lincoln, um, or at least he thought he was quoting Abraham Lincoln. No one's quite sure if Abraham Lincoln actually said this, but it's a great line, so we'll use it anyway. Uh, he, 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 he spoke about a situation where Abraham Lincoln, the American president, he led the North in battle and conquered the, you know, the slave-owning South. Someone has said to Lincoln, you know, why are you being so nice to the Southerners after all they've done? Lincoln said this, Madam, do I not destroy my enemies when I make them my friends? Do I not destroy my enemies when I make them my friends? Martin Luther King picked that line up too in his grace towards those who persecuted him. Do I not destroy my enemies when I make them my friends? When Christ makes you his friend, he is therefore reducing the number of enemies. The evangelistic mission of the church is a war. So in the same way as I asked you, can you tell me who, or sorry, what sins you are making war against? 
does the enemies within. Can I ask you how active you are in your prayers, your speaking, your living, as an army going out to conquer the nations for Christ with the word of the gospel? The battle for rest. But let's finish, not with a call to arms, rather a celebration. These last few verses, the last five verses, verses 17 to 22, after the battle for rest is the celebration of rest. I wonder if you saw the pattern. It gets a bit, a bit confusing, perhaps, on first reading. But basically, those in the nation, those out in the empire, they fight on the 13th of the month. And so they have a rest day of feasting and gladness on the 14th. Fighting 13th, rest, feast, gladness, party 14th. In the citadel, Susa, remember they had two days fighting, 13th and 14th. So they rest and feast and have gladness and a holiday on the 15th. In other words, the day after the fighting becomes a holiday. And the repeated theme, it's there in verse 23, for example, it is gladness, feasting. In fact, this becomes a holiday. We'll think about this more next week. This comes the whole, becomes the holiday known as Purim. Uh, it's Monday, Tuesday this week that Purim will be celebrated the day after the battle, the day after the fighting. Why are they celebrating therefore? They're not celebrating the bloodshed. They're celebrating the rest or the reversal. The, the passage begins and ends with this idea of being turned upside down. In verse 2, it was there. Uh, the Jews gathered to lay hands on those who sought their harm. No, it's not verse 2, is it? What am I doing today? Verse 1, end of verse 1. The, the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, but the reverse occurred. And it's the same word at the end of the passage in verse 22. They celebrate this month as the month that had been turned for them, reversed for them from sorrow to gladness. It's a turnaround day, a reversal day, where everything changes. They're celebrating not the bloodshed, but they're celebrating on the day after the bloodshed. They're celebrating the reversal, the rest, the relief, the joy, the happiness that comes because the battle is won. This is turnaround day, back to front day. Everything has changed. That's why they celebrate. What, how do they celebrate? Verse 22. They celebrate with a holiday. Not plowing and working and slaving away. They're resting. They feast good food. They give gifts to one another of food. And they give gifts to the poor to celebrate this rest that God has given them. Again, as we wrap up, what is this to do with us? What do we do? Are we to celebrate Purim next Tuesday to have a day off work and give gifts and feast and all the rest of it? Well, I don't think so, not particularly. Uh, we live in the days of the new covenant. We no longer celebrate all the festivals of the old testament but god has given us one day to celebrate and it is a day where we celebrate a great reversal it is sunday week by week the lord's day as the new testament calls it it is resurrection day the day when everything was reversed remember the disciples jesus uh, children walking with jesus along the road and sad they didn't realize who he was after he'd come back they're sad they're depressed they're saying it's all gone wrong it looked like the death of Jesus was a disaster. But on Easter Sunday, he rose again and everything was reversed. Sin had not won and therefore would not win. Death had not won and therefore would not win. The devil had not won and therefore would not win. Everything would be brought to rest. Jesus entered into his rest, resurrected. No more to die, no more to be tempted, no more to struggle, no more to weep. 
And that guaranteed that one day we too would enter that heavenly rest. And then he gave us this day to celebrate, the day of resurrection. Why did, why did churches meet on Sundays? Why are they always met on Sundays? It wasn't the most convenient day. Remember, the church began in, in, a, in a Jewish culture where Saturday was the day of rest. Inconvenient to meet on a Sunday. But they do so because that is the day God appoints as the Lord's day, the day of resurrection, the day of gathering and meeting to celebrate the great reversal. What does your Sunday look like? Can I suggest to you it ought to look a bit like Purim? It's a day of feasting to get together and celebrate that though we still suffer, though weeping is there from Monday through Saturday, we know because of the resurrection that joy will come. So feast, eat, open the wine, the chocolate spread, the Maltesers, children, whatever it is, and feast, eat. Forget the diet for one day and go for it, enjoy it. See, the Jews eat with one another, they give gifts to one another. Hospitality is not just a kind of nice thing to do because someone's new and perhaps they're a bit lonely. It is part of the celebration. We are a family for whom everything has been reversed. Give gifts to the poor. That is what we do after we celebrate this meal, the Lord's Supper, which itself is a little foretaste of the feast in heaven to come. Week by week, we take a collection in the next song precisely for those who are in need, brothers and sisters in need, locally and in the city and to the ends of the earth. Because everything's been reversed. So we don't need to hold on to the things of this age and make this world perfect now. We're at rest. We know we're going to a heavenly rest. I don't need to build heaven on earth so I can be liberal, generous with my possessions. Okay, that's why we take the, the, the collection in the service, by the way, for the poor. It's part of our worship, part of our thank you, Lord. I know you could do it midweek on a standing order or something, but that, that gift to the poor is part of the celebration of the great reversal uh, that God has given us in Christ. We rest. Students, don't work. Don't, 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 don't get to the library on a Sunday. Don't write your essays on a Sunday. This is the day of celebrating, rejoicing, and resting, feasting. Okay? Laptop shut, books sh- shut, wine open, Pringles open, whatever students eat, I don't know. Um, feast, crack open the, the real Pringles, not the Audi versions. Okay, just on a Sunday. Just on a Sunday. Families, never mind slaving away on a Sunday with the hoovering and the watch. I know it builds up. I've got five kids. Utter chaos. Our house looks like bedlam on a Monday morning. Utter bedlam. But celebrate, celebrate, rest and celebrate. Because no one can stop you entering that final rest. Christ has defeated the enemy once and for all. We are engaged in the kind of mopping up, defeating the sin that remains within us. But he will ensure that happens. We're involved in going to the nations with the gospel to make sure other people can join that rest. But until it arrives, until we arrive at heavenly rest, we have this one place where we celebrate the reversal. One place of peace, upside down day, Sunday, resurrection day. This is the the safe place, as it were, you can come to. This is what we celebrate as we gather, that everything has been changed. That's why the service tells the story every week. You need to hear it every week, that Christ has died and risen. Holy war has been waged against heaven's holy son, and all God's anger has been exhausted on him. So that all that remains for you is peace and bless, blessing. Life is mayhem. Life is sad. Life is confusing. It's messy. It's dark. But Jesus says, come and rest. One day it will happen. 
And week by week, I give you one little palace in time to enter. To look forward to the great blessing that will come. We feast now in the middle of history as an act of faith that one day we'll feast eternally with Christ. Let me pray. Our Father, we praise you that ultimately it's not us who've won the battle. It's not us that have to fight our way to heaven. But Christ has come. He's won. He's fought. He's conquered all that could stand against us so that nobody can separate us from the love of God and the rest that awaits us in heaven. We pray now that you'd fill us with certain hope that that rest will arrive and help us to fight against the very things that would disturb our enjoyment of that rest, the sin and unbelief that remains. Help us to fight for the good of our neighbours as we pray for them, wrestle with evil forces that would distract them. Help us to have courage to speak the gospel in order that more might hear of the good news that rest is open to all who come. Bless and empower your church, our Father, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.